Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Steve Reddish, VOA executive producer, and Chris Simpkins, VOA senior national affairs correspondent. Welcome, Chris and Steve. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden urged people to not panic as he announced an updated three-pronged plan to fight an expected rise in COVID-19 cases after the emergence of the highly contagious Omicron variant. He also pleaded with the millions of unvaccinated Americans to get their shots. President Biden appears determined to return to the negotiating table with Senator Joe Manchin, the holdout Democrat who effectively stalled the party's signature $2 trillion domestic policy initiative. Republican Representative Scott Perry rejected a request for records from the House of Representatives Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol building. Perry, a leader of the House Freedom Caucus, who communicated with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ahead of the attack, was the target of the committee's first known request to a sitting GOP lawmaker. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken highlighted renewed U.S. alliances abroad while also addressing foreign policy challenges such as Russia's actions on the Ukraine border and Afghanistan's growing humanitarian crisis. And those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, President Biden's new initiative on fighting COVID-19 focuses on sending millions of rapid at-home tests to Americans, bolstering support for hospitals facing intense pressure, and getting more people their booster shots. Steve, however, critics say this new initiative should have been put in place months ago as the CDC anticipated new outbreaks of COVID-19. What is your take on the president's new strategy? Well, one of the themes of Biden's presidential campaign was a return to competency. And now the competency of his administration is being called into question amid this Omicron variant wave, because a lot of people right now are trying to get tested because of the rise in cases and the seemingly ease in which people Even those who are vaccinated are getting the Omicron. Many people want to get tested before traveling for the holidays, before seeing relatives, some of whom may be in compromised health conditions, or even hosting others for the holidays. Biden announced on Tuesday that the government would be soon send half a billion, 500 million rapid COVID tests to Americans next month. But back in March, he made promises of more rapid testing. Even a few months ago, he even said the United States was going to get 300 million of these rapid home testing kits for COVID available on the shelves of pharmacies. And right now, there are very long lines at many American testing sites. There aren't enough testing sites. And Go to the pharmacies and try finding a rapid test or even more than one rapid test for your family. So there are a lot of questions about effectiveness of the administration's fight against COVID and whether or not we're going to be up to the task to be able to take care of this variant or any other variants that come down the road. Also, Chris, this rapid rise of infections is once again disrupting life across the country and canceling events from Broadway shows to professional sports. 
and even locally, I've noticed some school activities being canceled as well. So do you see the mask wearing and social distancing becoming just a normal part of our lives? Yes, and I think right now we have to look at it as a very smart thing to do. Here in Washington, D.C., the mayor just announced this week that people who want to enter restaurants, gyms, theaters, other public event spaces will have to show proof of vaccination, and that's new for the residents here in the nation's capital. But I think officials are concerned over the next three to eight weeks that with the spread of the new variant and the transmission rates of the new variant and people getting tested, you're going to see a lot more cases. And the guidance is right now, if you test positive, you're to quarantine for 10 days. So we've already begun to see this affect the workplace. And what people fear is that it could affect healthcare workers, if healthcare worker tests positive, they're not uh, going to come back into the hospital to treat patients. So I think these extra precautions are a smart thing to do, especially when we see cases that could be rapidly rising, like I said, in the next three to eight weeks. And with the hospitals getting filled again and, and actually staying filled with patients, most of whom are unvaccinated. As Chris mentioned, not only are they concerned that healthcare workers are going to get infected and have to quarantine, but the healthcare industry is already going through a crisis of a lack of workers. Many nurses, many healthcare professionals have decided, you know what? It's just been too much. It's been almost a two-year, 18-month roller coaster nightmare scenario of constant patients coming in, most of whom, as I said, are unvaccinated, and it's wearing on the healthcare industry and those who work in it. Another area, holiday travel, seems to be business as usual for most people when you're talking to people at the airports. And President Biden told Americans that those who are vaccinated and follow guidance around using masks, especially while traveling, should feel comfortable celebrating the holidays as planned. So in this regard, I guess it is a good sign that people are trying to get back to normal and are, for the most part, complying with health and safety regulations. One thing I'm encouraged about is news out of South Africa that the rate of cases are dropping and dropping significantly. This is a, after a couple, three weeks after the Omicron variant was discovered and cases skyrocketed. As one South African official said, they climbed Mount Everest and were on the north face of Mount Everest and are now seeing the south face and, and seeing a really remarkable drop in the number of cases. There is hope that Omicron is something that moves fast, isn't as deadly as previous variants, and perhaps the world can move on from Omicron in a short period of time. That's one of the things that I'm a little bit optimistic about word out of South Africa. Moving on now to other issues on Capitol Hill, Democratic leaders are facing painful decisions and intra-party tensions as they look for a path forward on President Biden's sweeping climate and social spending bill. So what is the next step considering what has happened with the bill? Is it dead? I don't think so, Kim. I think that the Democratic caucus and Democratic leaders are meeting right now 
in a renewed effort to try to bring Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia back on board. I think there has been a lot of criticism towards the senator from West Virginia, but I think there is an effort to try to bring him back on board. There seems to be a little bit more negotiating room, and I think they are hopeful that by the time next year rolls around, Senator Manchin might change his mind about voting no on this legislation. As you mentioned earlier in the program, President Biden has said he is going to try and work with Senator Manchin to get him back on board. He is the Senate's most conservative Democrat, and he says the measure is too expensive. One of his other arguments against spending and build back better is the current inflation rate, which is as high as it's been in about 40 years. Between emergency spending on the pandemic and lending by the Federal Reserve to keep the economy afloat during the pandemic and all of these supply chain disruptions, the prices for energy, food and housing has skyrocketed. And Manchin feels that any more government spending, any more additions to the national debt is going to keep inflation high and hurt his constituents. So. There's a lot of work that Democrats have to do, that President Biden has to do, to try and get Manchin to not only get on board, but likely shrink about $1.7 to $2 trillion worth of social spending down a lot more and find more ways to pay for it. Manchin has said that there are too many gimmicks in this bill to pay for what Democrats propose. Also, and in looking ahead to the 2022 midterms, do you all see moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats who are divided right now coming together so that they can talk up their achievements in order to keep the trust of their constituents and not lose next November? They're going to have to if they want to be successful in these key congressional November 2022 midterm elections. I think that there has been a lot of frustration over the last year that progressives and moderate Democrats haven't done more to kind of get on the same page and tout some of the successes that would come out of this social safety net spending measure. And I think a lot of people are suggesting that if it's passed, it will help deal with some of the problems that Steve spoke of, uh, including inflation. But there is a lot to be done between now and this coming November of 2022 to solidify and energize the Democrats, including progressives and the moderates, so they work together to get their message out there and show voters that they have made some progress in the last year and it's worth sticking with the Democrats in the midterms. Political history is against the Democrats. Historically, the congressional elections after a presidential election, whoever wins the White House, Democrat or Republican, they usually lose the House of Representatives in the following election. So they're up against history and they're up against a very slim majority. They only have anywhere from a three to five seat leeway in the House. And they have a president whose popularity has now declined to the point where, in some cases, it's as low as President Trump's highest approval ratings during his term. 
And as long as they are divided, Steve's right, it's going to be a tremendously hard job to be successful. And the Republicans right now, odds on favor to take back at least the House of Representatives and possibly the Senate. Yes, those are some really good points. And in looking at this big issue of inflation, we know that President Biden, he met with his supply chain disruptions task force to work to relieve long-term snarls in the supply chain. So in looking at this, what are some of the fixes that the Biden administration is trying to do, I guess, short-term and long-term? I think short-term, they're trying to get the ports and get a lot of the shipping containers that are moored offshore and waiting to get into ports to unload. He and his administration are looking for ways to speed that up, to keep ports open, to add workers to the various ports. But one of the problems is that many of these people are either concerned about getting sick or not in a position to go back to work. We're having a, a shortage of truckers throughout the country, people to haul goods from one coast to another, from the ports to the cities and to the rural communities. And without a good deal of truckers, then those goods are going to keep piling up and people are going to pay higher prices for the goods and services that a year or two years ago they were paying maybe 10% less for. I agree with Steve. I think analysts have said that these supply chain issues are going to last well through 2022 and possibly even to 2023. I mean, let's face it, since the pandemic began, uh, people were not able to spend. As restrictions lifted and businesses opened up, you saw a huge amount of spending. And Americans are spending a lot on goods. And some have even suggested that the administration urged Americans to kind of curb some of their buying habits to help level off some of these supply chain issues. But also you are seeing that the expense of shipping has become tremendous cost for a lot of companies. And what they are doing now is shipping from Asia, not to the ports of Los Angeles or San Diego, but they're shipping to Europe. And those ships are then coming from Europe to East Coast ports, which is cheaper. And next year, the Federal Reserve has talked about raising interest rates, making it more expensive for Americans to borrow and making money a little bit more tighter with hopes of curbing some of the spending and probably reducing some of the effects of inflation. Yeah, some really good points, as you both mentioned. This is a long-term battle. There's a lot there to untangle. So I'm sure we will be talking about inflation in the months to come. We're going to have to take a quick break now. And when we return, an update on the House of Representatives Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer, and Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Affairs Correspondent. 
Well, Representative Scott Perry rejected a request for records from the House of Representatives Select Committee. To date, the panel has been reluctant to issue subpoenas for information from sitting members of Congress, citing the deference and respect lawmakers in the chamber are supposed to show one another. So how significant was this step and what does it mean for them that Mr. Perry rejected the request? Congressman Perry's, while he's the first member of Congress to be subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, he's not going to be the last member of Congress to be subpoenaed. The committee is already asking Congressman Jim Jordan, who is a very ardent former President Trump supporter and very conservative member of the House of Representatives. He has already admitted to having been in contact that day with President Trump and with his uh, chief of staff, Mark Meadows. So the committee is not necessarily subpoenaing him yet, but is asking him for a conversation with the committee to talk about his conversations with President Trump on January 6th. By revealing some of those text messages from the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, the committee is trying to exert some public pressure on Meadows and other members of Congress who may have had communications with the president. So I think we will see more subpoenas of members of Congress, as well as likely more lawsuits from those people who are being subpoenaed, mostly in a way to delay what will likely be the inevitable, either having to testify or if they delay long enough, and Republicans win in 2022 and win back control of the House of Representatives, you could be sure that the January 6th committee investigating what happened will be dissolved as soon as the Republicans take control of the House. And while the committee wants to interview and have some of these members of Congress sit down, we have to remember that the committee has interviewed hundreds of other people and obtained the records of those people, too. So they want these lawmakers to kind of come in and maybe fill in some of the gaps, but necessarily not needing their complete testimony because they have, like I said, interviewed a lot of other people and obtained a lot of other evidence. So it will be interesting to see if these stall tactics by some of these Republican lawmakers who are suing and who have refused to cooperate with the committee will be able to so-called run out the clock. And the pressure is likely going to ratchet up sometime early next year when the committee starts holding open hearings, televised hearings, some of which have been said will be in prime time, you know, in the evening for more people to be able to watch. And once that happens, I think you'll see the pressure increasing on those who have been subpoenaed and are pushing back. And as more people hear about what happened on January 6th and in the days that led up to it, I think there will be even more pressure to go further with the January 6th committee to really find out what happened. Tim, I might add, it's not looking all of that great. You had Congressman Jordan, who admitted to sending a text message to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, giving him ideas about how Vice President Mike Pence might invalidate the Electoral College votes in an effort to try to overturn President Biden's election victory. And he also mentioned that he was in touch with President Trump 
on the day of the insurrection at the Capitol. It shows that there were close ties going on and close communications. You both have brought up some very interesting points, and we will continue to follow this as the investigation continues. And I want to get in our last topic and looking over the last year, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken highlighted renewed U.S. alliances abroad while also addressing foreign policy challenges, such as Russia's actions on the Ukraine border and Afghanistan's growing humanitarian crisis. So looking at the situation on the Ukrainian border, what can the world expect to happen in the following year? It's been a year for Blinken. In his news conference, he warned of massive consequences if Russia keeps up its aggression against Ukraine. We could expect to see some kind of conversation, the beginning of talks between or among European allies, the United States and Russia, to figure out how to defuse the Ukraine situation. But it's going to take a lot for them to demilitarize along the border. There are so many troops and so much armament built up along the Ukrainian border that it's going to take as much to dismantle as it has to assemble all of that. It's going to be a really challenging year because right now Moscow is playing a hard line and Putin is demanding quick resolution to his demands that NATO not expand. And I think that he is trying to put pressure on the administration to see his point of view. And he said that placing missiles in Ukraine would be akin to placing missiles pointing at the United States from Canada and Mexico. Secretary of State Blinken does have his work cut out for them, especially when the United States says that possible NATO expansion to other countries, and including Ukraine, is a non-starter as far as they're concerned, if NATO wants to do that. And we do have interest in Ukraine, and we are likely to keep up the pressure on Moscow to de-escalate the situation along the border first before we start to really engage them in substantive talks aimed at trying to de-escalate, especially the military buildup along the Russia-Ukrainian border. Yes, I just wanted to also quickly get in Afghanistan, your thoughts on this growing humanitarian crisis there. There were protests this past week with people marching through the streets to demand the U.S. unfreeze their financial assets there. So where does the U.S. stand currently on Afghanistan and the Taliban? The Biden administration on Wednesday loosened sanctions somewhat to expand the definition of what humanitarian assistance is. And it came under a lot of pressure from members of Congress and others on the Biden administration to help the situation in Afghanistan, which U.N. officials say is a humanitarian crisis in the making. And the economy of Afghanistan is about to fall into free fall, according to many experts on the subject. So the U.S. administration has loosened somewhat the rules on providing humanitarian assistance, but it's not going to be anything to prevent Afghanistan from sliding considerably and the people of Afghanistan to suffer considerably. I think the United States is going to have to look at doing a little bit more and joining with other countries to try to help avert a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, where you see almost half of the population, about 20 million people, facing severe food insecurity, and you have about a million 
children suffering from malnutrition. So the world cannot sit back and allow this humanitarian disaster to play out. And when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, the economy was heavily dependent on foreign financial assistance. Basically, when the U.S. withdrew and imposed some of these restrictions and sanctions on the Taliban, it eliminated about 40% of the country's gross domestic product, and that's 75% of the government's budget. So the government of Afghanistan needs a lot of help now, and it will be interesting to see if the international community steps forward in a more meaningful and impactful way to help bring some more you know, liquidity into the country and get money into the hands of Afghans. Yes, absolutely. And we will have to end the show on that note as we are out of time. I want to thank our panelists, Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer, and Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Affairs Correspondent, for joining me. And thank you both for your analysis on these challenging issues. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 